You know, Genesis is the account of the greatest lost and found story of all time. It's the account of God making a way to point us to that neon hat, <laughs> to see where we need to be, to restore what was lost, to provide for the ultimate reunion. And in a sea of evil and in misdirection, God made a way. For amongst competing landmarks, God set aside that neon green hat. It would take time. What was created in a breath would be lost for a very long time, but not forever. And along the way to the ultimate restoration is the story of God seeking and finding and providing the way for everyone to recognize how lost they are and to find home again in Him. This message is dedicated to our dear friend, Lorraine Frias. Hallelujah, amen. All right, so... In our previous message, if you were here, you recall that I asked you to consider how long is too long? How long is too long? And it's because we feel the longing as we wait, and we feel the heaviness of the wait. Um, It hangs. It hangs on us heavily sometimes. Why? Well, because our moment right now, what we're going through we cannot escape the sense that things are not right. As great and beautiful and glorious as our moments can be, the birth of a child, even a beautiful sunset, even just the simple pleasures of of a flower or a wonderful meal, we know things aren't right. There's a sense of that. And everyone seems to know that because every religion is based to some degree on the wrongness and how to make it right or the denial that anything is wrong and it's all just in your head and your perception that's religion right we know things are not as they should be and what's interesting is if the bible if the message the goal of the bible was for us to feel bad then the bible would be a perfect story telling the accounts of perfect people. So we would just read all these perfect people and we'd go, oh, such a loser. My life is so messed up compared to them. But as you have learned going through Genesis, we're kind of doing pretty good compared to some of these people. (laughs) The Bible isn't a story of perfect people in a perfect life, living everything perfectly, doing it all right and just the right time and saying things. You see, the point is that God doesn't want us to feel bad. Listen, he wants us to know him. The Bible, then, is not a book about how to make bad people good. It's how to make lost people found. It's how to make the dead alive. Satan wants us to feel bad, or worse, be content as lost and deny that we're even dead. And God's desire is to seek and to find and to restore and to mend and for us to live in truth. And the truth is that people are broken and we are fallen, right? And in Genesis, we see how God is working 
in lost people, in broken people, to bring about a perfect reunion. And heading toward ultimate restoration. And so we left off in Lesson 11, Genesis 45, with a big reveal and a big revival. Joseph revealing his true identity and the ever-dramatic, melodramatic Jacob revived from near death when he hears and believes that his long-lost favorite son is not only found but is the right hand of Pharaoh himself. The end of chapter 45, verse 47, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. How many times has he said something about dying, right? <laughs> Jacob. And here we are today, at the beginning of the end of Genesis. And this is a review of Lesson 12, covering Genesis chapters 46 through 50. So I invite you to open up your Bible and follow along as we go through these passages together. Chapter 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he had his Hanemi moment again. Here I am. Verse 3. Then he said, I am God. God of your father, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Remember that God had forbidden Isaac from going down. Jacob's dad had been forbidden from going down to Egypt. And God now tells Jacob, don't be afraid to go there. And reassures Jacob of the great promise, I will make you into a great nation. And assures Jacob also that I myself will go down with you and I will bring you up. And this is the last time God is recorded speaking to the patriarchs. And it's the fourth time that God has said, do not fear. Notice that God calls to Jacob and speaks his name twice. And this echoes the last time God spoke to Abraham and the next time God will speak when he calls another patriarch, Moses. He we also called twice at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. So Jacob and his family head down and Moses takes time to note the details and the total number of the people, verse 27. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Huh, 70. Why is that significant? I mean, why take the time? And he does take the time because he counts off all these people and you can sit there and do the math and count it all yourself. I mean, that's a lot of detail. But as we learned at the beginning, and as I encourage you at the opening of Genesis to not ignore little details, but to really move in on them and think, well, if it's there and if it's making me confused, there's got to be a reason. Like, what's up with that, right? 70. Huh. Where have we heard this very specific number before? Genesis chapter 10. You want to hop back there real quick? Genesis 10. Remember Noah's offspring? And essentially, truthfully, the entire human race after the flood, how many were there in all? There were 70. 70. 
Seventy came out. Seventy came out and were preserved. Noah represented the new Adam, and now Israel and his family, they represent a new humanity, a new humanity that God is raising up in the world with a very clear mission. And that mission's going to get even more clear. It's going to take 400 years to get there. And that mission is to bear his name, to bear his image. And that mission, ultimately, is to save all people. So this caravan of 70 sojourners, 75 by Acts Reckoning, because they based it on the Septuagint, and the counting that happened here was on the original writings of the Old Testament, and the 70 was recorded um, by the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew writings. also means 70, by the way, Septuagint. Remember that it was Judah, and who was the greatest offender. Remember him? <laughs> Judah, Judah, Judah. And that caravan of 70 sojourners is led by none other than Judah, right? Judah, the one who had plotted to sell Joseph, separating him from Jacob. And now here he is leading the reunion, bringing father and favored son back together. And he leads the family down, not just to Egypt, but into the favored land of Goshen within Egypt. Verse 28 to 30, we get this dramatic reunion. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him, fell on his neck, and wept on his neck a good while. And you could just sense the sobbing reunion as the feeble Jacob limps to his feet to embrace his son, right? And he, they're probably just both wet with tears after this Reunion, you can imagine how amazing it was. Verse 30, Israel said to Joseph, <laughs> Jacob, now let me die. <laughs> Since I have seen your face and I know that you are still alive. So Joseph gets down to business and he coaches his brothers. You remember how the Egyptians feel about shepherds, right? They're abominations. So Joseph is really clear. Don't tell anyone you're a shepherd because the Egyptians think that that's, you're a bunch of abominations. Is that what he says? No. The exact opposite of what you would think. If the Egyptians think they're a bunch of abominations, don't you think Joseph would say, do not tell anybody that you're an abomination? Hashtag shepherd, right? No. Joseph is super clear and extremely detailed in his instructions. He knows that they are going to have to appear before Pharaoh, and so he coaches them to keep it real and don't hide this humble occupation, abomination. <laughs> They're shepherds. If you were the brothers of the man, or the sisters, of the man who literally saved the world, wouldn't you expect to get kind of some special treatment? Seems like a, that'd be pretty much a slam dunk, right? Couldn't Joseph have gotten them all top jobs in the government? Couldn't he have gotten them all big positions of power in the Egyptian leadership? Of course he could have. But Joseph is wise. Joseph's forward thinking. And he prevents his family from being true abominations and actually corrupted by pagan Egyptian life. And instead... He insists that they emphasize that they're shepherds because he knows that's what's going to keep them sanctified or separate. He takes 
five, not all of his brothers, if you remember, five of his brothers go with him before Pharaoh. And they do exactly as he says. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> good job, five. And then, wouldn't you like to know who the five were? And in response, Pharaoh, maybe some of the five guys you never get named, you know, Gad, we never hear about Gad. What is he up to? We have never know. Zebulun, maybe one of those guys. In response, Pharaoh not only gives them the land of Goshen, but he says, take care of my flocks as well. That's pretty cool. So now it's time for Jacob to meet Pharaoh. And when the five brothers are before Pharaoh, they refer to themselves over and over again as your servants to Pharaoh, your servants, we are your servants. But listen to the differences Jacob addresses Pharaoh. And keep in mind, Pharaoh's the ruler, essentially, of the world, the greatest military might, the leader of the only nation that has any food, and he's the center of commerce, and he's basically the center of hope for everyone. He's just granted the best of the land with a wave of his hand, and now feeble, elderly, limping, melodramatic Jacob stands in his presence, and we hear no your servant language from Jacob. Instead, verse 7, Jacob blessed Pharaoh, the greater, always blesses the inferior, right? We learned that earlier in the Melchizedek-Abraham encounter. Hebrews reminds us of this as well. Jacob's doing something pretty big here. This is a big, bold statement. Jacob is no way by anyone's human reckoning the greater. This limping, old, feeble, melodramatic man is the greater, not in anybody else's estimation. He walks in an abomination to the Egyptians. And so Pharaoh does this interesting thing, and he makes basically small talk with Jacob. He says, uh, Jacob, how's the weather? No, he says, how many are the days of the years of your life? How, how old are you? <laughs> okay, do you want to check my driver's license or may, you know? And Jacob says to Pharaoh, again, in true Jacob fashion, the days of the years of my sojourning, that's his word for life, are 130 years. And then he goes on. He could have just stopped right there. And let me tell you about those 130 years. It kind of sounds like a Jewish grandma at this point. <laughs> Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in their days of their sojourn. Wow. And that's it. That's all we get. And then we find out, verse 10, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh twice. He's like this little sandwich, opens with a blessing, tells him of his woes, and then closes with a blessing. And he goes out from the presence of Pharaoh. And that's the end of that. That's it. Two questions. Why does Pharaoh care about Jacob's age? And why did Moses include that detail? Well, it's interesting. Egyptians believed that living to an old age was a sign not only of blessing, but of superiority and high spirituality. So Jacob is clearly very old, and it's astonishing. Egyptians had a thing back in the day where if you got to the age of 110, that would be amazing. So he's way beyond this 110 age limit that Egyptians revered. So he's the last man, actually, that lives beyond 120 years. Remember that God had said man would only live 120 years, and yet Abraham lived to be 175. 
Isaac, 180. Jacob is now 130. And he's going to live for another 17 years. He dies at age 147. Pharaoh's astonished. Interesting. Moses, interestingly, dies at exactly 120 and records and is recorded for us, I believe, to help the date their arrival in Egypt and emphasize the esteem that the Egyptians had for Joseph and his family in spite of them being abominations. There's something up with these shepherds, these Israelites. Something's up with them. And that plays into the next story to come, right? And if you want to, you can go ahead on into Exodus and read on and just see like, oh my goodness, there must have been something about that that got passed along. All right, so with Pharaoh's permission and Jacob's blessing, Pharaoh, uh, Joseph settles in uh, the family and he stays with them in Goshen. It's interesting to note that the Hebrew word Goshen is actually really similar to the word for garden. The word garden in Hebrew is spelled Gimel Nun. Goshen is also begins with Gimel, closes with Nun, and has one letter in the middle, Shin. Gimel, Shin, Nun. Garden, Goshen. Deliberately making a word play that sound very similar, almost like you could say garden and Gershon. You know how you might jokingly say somebody's name on purpose to make them think of something else? Garden, Gershon. Now listen, there's so many parallels between the opening and closing of Genesis. And here's one. Where's Adam placed? In a garden. And what is the command given to Adam? Be fruitful and multiply. And here's Jacob being given Gershon, Goshen. And what happens? While all around them is famine, severe famine, actually, the people sell their land, they sell their animals, eventually they sell themselves to Joseph and Egypt. Egypt owns them all, literally owns them all. And this is the tension, this is the cost, this is the reminder that while we're sojourning, we're not where we're, we belong. We have a home, Israel knows this, but for now they are in exile. But instead of languishing along with the rest of the world, what do we see? We'll take a look at verse 27. Thus Israel, the nation and the man, settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it. Everybody else had just sold off all their possessions. They come in autonomously. And in it, what do they do? They fulfill the mandate. They are fruitful. And they multiplied greatly. Wow. Exactly what God had commanded of Adam and of Noah. He just causes to happen for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He commanded Adam, be fruitful and multiply. He commanded Noah, you be fruitful and multiply. And we don't see any other things like that happening after Abraham. Abraham is blessed to be fruitful and multiply. Isaac is fruitful and multiplies. Jacob, Israel, is fruitful and multiplies. Genesis 17, 6 says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And Jacob makes his family a promise that they will promise him that they're going to bury him in their family cave, Machpelah, a cave which is in a field which is surrounded by trees. And in Hebrew, the word Machpelah sounds like the word naked. 
It's just amazing. So Jacob here is pointing to hope, taking his body to a place as a reminder that he has hope that God will bring his people up out of exile. Also remember that Israel is finally fulfilling God's mandate and also see God's promise being fruitful and multiplying. So chapter 27 closes with the reminder that Jacob is 147, he's ready to die, and then chapter 48 and 49 contain Jacob's blessings for Joseph and his sons along with all the other sons, everybody. And these are not exactly blessings. (laughs) So to begin with, Jacob adopts Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons. He didn't have to do that, but he does that. He blesses Sons that aren't his, he adopts them in to his family as if they are his own. What an amazing thing to do. Not required at all. But Israel takes the time to say, nope, you're mine. As if you were my very own. And you're going to get the, same, you're going to get the blessing extended to you. Jacob's blessings are more than just a kind word if even that. They're they're actually prophetic. They're called oracles, really. And consider this. Think about Joseph. What's Joseph lack in his life? Nothing, really. The entire nation has literally given all their money, livestock, land, even themselves, into Joseph's hands. He has all the wealth. He has all the power of Egypt. What then is Joseph's priority? True blessing, honoring and fearing God. And like Moses, who will come after Joseph, had at his hand the wealth and the privilege of Egypt. What does the author of Hebrews say about this? His desire was to be counted among the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of Egypt. And they are fleeting, aren't they? And throughout Joseph's life, whether he's poor and miserable, and he's both, whether he's rich or powerful, and he's both, He never loses sight of the fact that heavenly spiritual purpose of God surpasses anything and everything in this world. Chapter 48, Jacob hears that Joseph has come. He gathers his strength to sit up, speak to Joseph, reminds Joseph of the covenant blessings that God had given to him when God blessed him at Luce. And remember that God appeared to Jacob twice, two different occasions at this site, Luce or Bethel. First, the latter dream, right? And then second, when God renames him Israel. So we have the ladder, and then the limp, and then the renaming. And he gets his new name, Israel. Verse 8 there, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, note that it says Israel saw. Do you see that? When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, I could see him beaming with pride. Well, these are my sons whom God has given me. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Look at verse 10. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he, what, could not see. Which is it, Moses? Verse 8, Israel saw Joseph's sons. Verse 10, he could not see. Hmm. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. Behold, God has let me see your offspring also. So Jacob blesses Joseph through his two sons, and he switches their birth order and the birthright 
which should have gone to Manasseh, goes instead to Ephraim. And doing this passes the birthright, which would have gone to Reuben, the firstborn. And he gives it essentially to Joseph, vicariously through Joseph's two sons. Now, what's the best commentary on the Old Testament? The New Testament, and any other scripture in the Old Testament. Interesting. First Chronicles chapter 5. Let's take a look at what the Bible says about itself. First Chronicles chapter 5. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Thus, he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So he gives the blessing to Joseph, but it goes to Ephraim and Manasseh. There's your answer right there, First Chronicles chapter 5. Well, <laughs> wise, God-fearing, dream-interpreting Joseph does something really interesting here. And we just see a little flash of his humanity because he's a pretty amazing guy all the way through, right? And you're like, how can this guy be real, right? Joseph's not happy. In fact, in verse 17, when he sees his father put his right hand on Ephraim, it says it was, he was displeased. The actual Hebrew word there is it was evil in his sight. It wasn't just displeased. He was, he was ticked off. He was mad. This was a, a wrong, an injustice. This was really bad. And Joseph's like, oh, Dad, you're driven with an older person. You're like, oh, Dad. Or had a conversation with someone, you're like, God, don't say that anymore when they talk with like an Asian accent or something in front of people. Like, oh, we don't do that anymore, Dad. That's kind of how Joseph seems to be treating his dad. Like, Dad, oh. Two ironies I want you to see here. Number one, Joseph sees this as evil. When it is his father who's seeing is dim, but it is Joseph who's actually not seeing rightly. Jacob's seeing prophetically. Jacob is the one seeing. He's the one walking by faith, not by sight. And we get this glimpse of Joseph kind of missing the mark here. Number two, this is so interesting. Wasn't it Jacob who used his own father's weak eyes to steal a blessing? And now it's Jacob with weak eyes giving the blessing the way God wanted it. Jacob had stolen what he didn't even need to steal because a prophecy had been spoken that Joseph would, uh, Jacob would get the blessing. The younger would be over the older. But he stole it anyway. He's sneaky. He heel grasped, right? And now he's grasping correctly. He's hearing from God because he's going to go into this huge prophetic oration in just a minute because you, you know he's spirit-filled, right? So the blessing that God had promised would be his. He stole, and now he's bestowing the blessing the way God wants it, blessing the younger over the older, well, okay, actually three things. Number three, remember also that the blessings are always about the big picture. It's always about restoring what was lost and the consequences on those who refuse God's blessing, right? And isn't that what Esau did? He despised his birthright, right? So Jacob turns to bless Joseph. And again, what did he give the man who has everything? <laughs> Here's some more gold. Here's some more donkeys. No. You give him the only thing that matters. Verse 21. God. God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. He's reiterating what God had promised to him. And we get an interesting detail about Jacob that he had battled and defeated the Amorites. Like, when did you do that? Before or after the limp? I kind of want to know. Right? 
And he took this one particular mountain slope after a big battle. Really? You get a slope out of the deal? And uh, <laughs> we learn way later in Joshua 24, that's exactly what happened. And that's exactly where Joseph ends up getting buried. And you can read that again on your own. You can go to Joshua 24 and get more details on that story. But Joseph gets buried on that slope, the slope that Jacob took and conquered the Amorites. Also, remember the Amorites were the ones whose iniquity was not yet complete that God had told uh, uh, Abraham about. And uh, he said, the Amorites' iniquity is not yet complete. And boy, they're going to get really disgusting. And Moses and all those guys later on are going to take care of them. Anyway, chapter 49. After this, Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. He is setting this up, not just like in any old ordinary blessing moment, but I'm going to prophesy. Here we go. Verse two, assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. Not particularly a blessing like he had said when he called Joseph's sons, and this moment must have brought some fear to them, the brothers, because he says he's going to tell them what's going to happen to them. And beginning with Reuben, Jacob says. Now, if you're Reuben, you're like, I, I stepped up. I'm a good guy. I, I did the right thing. I, I tried to keep your son you know, from being killed. And, uh, and then I offered up my, my two kids. Remember all that? And it starts off really cool and strong. Verse 3. You are my firstborn. Reuben's like, yes, I am. My might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, Four references to him being the first, the top. A great blessing should be coming. He's setting up Reuben really high. Maybe Reuben's recalling that he was, again, the one who persuaded his brothers not to kill Joseph, the one who offered to let his own two sons die. If Benjamin doesn't come back, nope. Reuben's youthful sin ends up disqualifying him, and Jacob prophesies, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Oh, wow. Ouch. And it's true. See, Reuben tried to usurp the birthright as well by producing a son falsely through his own father's wife. So verse 5, and Simeon and Levi are up. Jacob doesn't even add any words to get their hopes up at all. He just lights them up. He's never forgotten about their treachery at Shechem when all that trouble happened and the horrible things they did, weapons of violence, that my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company and their anger. They killed men, willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. You're like, the hamstrung oxen? There's another detail we didn't even know about. It's so awful. Cursed be their anger. It's fierce. Their wrath is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them as Israel. And there's Simeon and Levi just like, whoa. <laughs> Powering down for Simeon, the curse of being divided and scattered in the future of nation of Israel is going to be fulfilled exactly like that. The tribe of Simeon basically vanishes after the Israelites get into that promised land. You never hear anything about him. With Levi, however, it's really interesting. God's going to redeem the curse into a blessing. He's going to scatter the Levites, just like Jacob prophesies, but he's going to just scatter them, not anonymously to filter in. They actually become overseers and teachers of the law, don't they? They're the priests. They settle through the entire nation of Israel. And Levi will be the only tribe not to gain an inheritance in the land, but God's going to give them a better inheritance. He's going to give them himself. The priests come from Levi's lineage because it was the Levites who end up standing with Moses when the other tribes rebel in the wilderness. 
and they, they take down all the disobedient people. It's pretty violent, but they do. So we have Reuben and Simeon and Levi, basically the coulda, woulda, shoulda brothers, and uh, they lose the blessing. And uh, Jacob turns now to Judah, who has every reason to fear a terrible oracle against him. He literally orchestrated the sale of the favored son. He left and married a woman in Canaan. He slept with the dead son's wife, thinking she was a prostitute. But it was Judah amongst all the brothers who's elevated because it's Judah who stood willing to actually lay down his own life for the youngest, most vulnerable of Jacob's sons, Benjamin. But pause before we get to the blessing because you have to remember that all the, if you stack it up on a list, all the wicked, evil, disgusting, horrible things that Judah does doesn't seem to really get outweighed by that speech that he gives. He doesn't end up laying down his own life. He just says he will. And he, he does give an amazing speech, and it is truly amazing. But if you're keeping score, it's like, well, I mean, Reuben only kind of slept with your wife. You know, <laughs> you really wanted to, you know, murder your brother. I mean, you could really kind of weigh it all out and, and go like, what's up with Judah getting all this? And this is an important reminder to us. God doesn't keep a score like we do. He doesn't tally like we do. He doesn't have the same tally sheets that we do. It has nothing to do with that. You don't get blessed because you were good. Or you don't get cursed because you were bad. You get blessed or cursed based on your relationship with God. So Judah, whose name means praise, and Jacob begins with a play on his name. His name means praise. So Yehuda, pray, your brothers, will praise you. Yeduka. So praise, you will be praised by your brothers. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouches as a lion and as a lioness who dares to rouse him. And this is so important. Verse 10. I wish I could preach an entire sermon on just this verse. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The true kings of Israel come from none other than Judah's lineage. And so Judah gets this amazing prophetic blessing that leads to Israel's first amazing king, David, and ultimately to king of all kings, Jesus Christ himself. That's pretty amazing. And there's no way our math would ever add up that he deserved that. That's God's grace. That's God's choice. We have to get rid of that karma-type thinking that even infects our Christianity. If I'm this good, I'll get this much. I must have been that bad, so I got that much. Man, that person must have been really bad. They're getting... That is not how God operates. He doesn't keep accounting like we do. Thank God he doesn't, or we'd all be in hell. So after blessing Joseph, Jacob declares where the source of blessing comes from, verse 24, and commends Joseph with all the blessings of God, saying the word blessing six times by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father, who will help you by Almighty El Shaddai, who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast of the womb, blessings of your father, and mighty beyond the blessings of my parent up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Verse 28. And all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable. 
So Jacob opens, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you. And Moses closes by saying, this is all blessings. And even though you went through and said, blessed or cursed, blessed or cursed, a little bit of both. I don't understand that one. <laughs> Moses says it for us. This is what's going to happen. And these are blessings. And then later on in Deuteronomy, if you want to look it up, uh, Moses actually kind of repeats and, and revises and, and retells the blessings as well toward the end as they get ready to enter the promised land. We'll get to that another day. So Jacob repeats the command to bury him in the cave of Machpelah, verse 29. And he commanded them and he said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Such hope, such confidence, such strength. Bury me with my fathers. And he reviews the family history with them. And then verse 33, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet. So precious, so beautiful, this moment. And he breathed his last. And he was gathered to his people. Now, he isn't physically with them. But Moses is writing and reminding that there is a life beyond this life. There is hope. And he speaks to that right here. And at this, Joseph falls, verse uh, chapter 50, on the fa father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And so they embalmed Jacob, the traditional Egyptian method, and Joseph appeals to Pharaoh and to take Jacob's body to the cave of Machpelah as promised. And after returning to Egypt, verse 15, Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. And uh, not literally, it's just like the, things start to reckon in their mind and they start calculating in their little brotherly way. And they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. And rightfully so. You guys are horrible. <laughs> you did horrible things. So they send a message to Joseph. You remember those little messages? Click this box. Yes or no. Do, will you murder us later? <laughs> right? They send a message to Joseph saying, um, <clears throat> in shaky handwriting. Remember how I have you write in your uh, non-dominant hand? You imagine it like that. Uh, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, uh, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Really? There's no way. Jacob didn't do that. This is them conniving and scheming again. They just can't quite get it out of their system. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers came also and fell down before him and said, Behold, we're your servants. Don't do us, don't do us wrong. Don't do us what we deserve. That's how we all end up feeling before God. I deserve nothing. Good. I'm a dirty, rotten scoundrel, right? We come to God like this, and God rightfully can condemn us all. Dad's not here anymore? Off with your head. You're dead. Because that's what happens when, when Dad's in the room, you know, maybe he was just being restrained. But Joseph doesn't act like that. Joseph is the epitome of grace, humility, mercy. And meekness, and I want to point meekness out to you in just a minute, especially. Joseph said to them, do not fear. For I, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do, do not fear. Again, he says it. I will provide for you and your little ones. In other words, I'm not going to take it out on the kids later either. And thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. And going back to Jacob's oracle, I skipped it on purpose. Go back to Jacob's oracle over Joseph. Look at chapter 49, verse 24. It says, his bow remained unmoved. Now, put your hands in the, in the position of holding a bow and arrow, like you're holding a bow, and you've, you pulled it back, right? And your hands remain unmoved. Now, you hold that position while I finish talking. You just keep it out there. Tension it up. Let's go. 
His arms were made agile. His bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. His bow remained unmoved. What's the purpose of letting go of that bow? What's the purpose? An arrow's going to fly out of that, isn't it? You can let your hands go down. You get the point, I hope. Joseph is a paradigm of restraint. He had the ability to kill them all. He had the right to kill them all. His bow remained unmoved. But here's what's important. How was that possible? Because in my flesh, and surely in Joseph's flesh, there's no way. If I had the opportunity to get back at somebody, kapow, right? No, by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. That's what stayed his hand. He had the might. He had the right to exact vengeance. But he holds the arrow still, doesn't let it fly. His arms were stayed in strength by the mighty one of Jacob because his fear of God is greater than his desire. It's greater than his regret. It's greater than his entitlement. His fear of God is greater than his own personal sense of justice and how life should be and how long this should have taken. It's not because all things work together for good, period. It's because God works all things together for good. And it's not for everyone. It's for those who are called according to his purpose, which is exactly who Joseph was, someone called according to God's purpose. And then we get the details of the remaining years of Joseph's life, verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, but he didn't live in the palace with Pharaoh. He remained with his family in Goshen. And Joseph lived 110 years. I apologize, I think I said 120 earlier. Joseph lived 110 years. Like his father and grandfathers before him, his dying request is to be buried in the promised land. And he gives reassurances to his brothers, verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you. God will bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Remember, they're only two years in on the famine. They got three more to go. Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. Can you imagine, like when you tell your kids, look, I'm telling you right now, you behave yourself while I'm gone. <coughs> yes, mom, I'll behave while I'm, you say it again. I'll behave myself while you're gone. <laughs> He's making them swear it. God will surely visit you. Okay, God will surely visit you. You shall carry my bones up from here. And Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him. He was put in a coffin in Egypt. You know, Genesis ends with people in exile away from the land that he had promised to give. But Genesis ends with a view forward with the promise that God will bring them out of exile and back into their own land, land that they, have, they don't own at all. And isn't this exactly what Christ promises us in the closing words of the New Testament? Revelation 22, verse 20, Surely I am coming soon. Egypt, as comforting as it was, and it was comforting, it was a source of food. It was, a, it was a bringing together and reuniting a family. They were there. It was a good place. As comforting as all that was, Egypt, where God left them and provided for them, was not the final place. Egypt is still exile. And like Joseph and his family are not home, we as well are not home. We're here, though. We're here. And Joseph didn't waste his time wishing he was someplace else. Who was lost in Eden will be found in heaven and has begun to be found now. When Joseph said that you meant for evil, God meant for good, is the ultimate wrap-up of the account, and ultimately it's our wrap-up as well. When Genesis begins, it begins with humans determining good and evil for themselves. 
And it ends with another question of good and evil, only this time Joseph makes it right. God, I'm not in his place. God determines what's right and wrong. God stayed that arrow. Genesis opens with Cain's callous question, am I my brother's keeper? And it closes with the answer, Joseph says, yes. I'll take care of my brothers. We are our brother's keepers. And he straightens things out with his brothers. Joseph and his brothers show us that God's way is to realize that relationships, families, are not about a game of right and wrong. God alone is the decider of good and evil. Our job then is not to determine right and wrong. Our job is to obey God's plan for right and wrong. There's no perfect family for God to work through to show us the way to him. There's only his perfect son. And the entire story of the Bible points to him as the way. Creation will forever remain lost, but God. The curse will never be reversed, but God. The truth is there is no hope without God. 4,000 years from the moment that all was lost in the garden, two dejected men lost on a dusty road expressed the sentiment that we can all relate to when they said this, we had hoped He was the one to redeem. But they weren't alone. There was a third man walking with them, and he gave them the answer. We should all know that beginning in Genesis with Moses, all the scripture points to the only hope, Jesus. And what did Jesus say in the culminating account of his life? He announced his mission to seek and save the lost And he revealed what scripture had taught for 4,000 years. And beginning with Moses, he explained that from the words of Moses, Genesis account that we've just finished, every word from Genesis through the prophets pointed to Jesus, the promised seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent. Scriptures then teach us how to wait for the Lord with an expectant hope and ultimately Genesis is the beginning of all things and the beginning of how all things will end. When our son was four years old, we were wrapping up this long, fun day at the San Diego Zoo. You been there? And we were shopping at that amazing gift shop they have. And um, about every other parent was also doing the exact same thing that day. And uh, so the shop is super duper crowded, close of the day. So stay close, stay near, Jonathan, I said. And uh, he was just wandering around, wide-eyed, close enough to me, through the store. He trailed around, following him, very weary and tired. Remember, Daddy's got that neon green cap on. Look for him above the crowd if you need to, okay? And he nodded. He's excited. And he continues to go around, looking through this display and that, picking up a stuffed animal and a shining rock, other trinkets to mark our day. Everything was perfect until... Jonathan? (laughs) Jonathan? Jonathan! Where are you? One minute he was at my side, looking for his name on an animal-shaped keychain. The next, gone, not a whisper, not a trace. Where was he? I went from a bit agitated to furiously panicked. And taking my own advice, I immediately looked up and around to see that neon green cap. My husband, right up there on the second level. There was Glenn. I got his attention and I motioned to him. Is Jonathan with you? You know, (laughs) how you do? No, he said. I motioned more frantically that I didn't have him either, and we both went into parent bloodhound mode. 
looking, calling, looking again, calling louder, calling out in a crowded store for a missing child amongst a sea of other busy and weary parents doesn't get missed. And immediately, I felt the empathetic looks from other parents and people began to ask for a description of our little Jonathan. I was almost too frantic to even stop to describe him, but I pulled myself together enough to give them the details. Within seconds, we had a team of parents spanning throughout the store, looking with compassion, with one mission, find that little lost boy. You know, Genesis is the account of the greatest lost and found story of all time. It's the account of God making a way to point us to that neon hat, <laughs> to see where we need to be, to restore what was lost, to provide for the ultimate reunion. And in a sea of evil and in misdirection, God made a way. For amongst competing landmarks, God set aside that neon green hat. It would take time. What was created in a breath would be lost for a very long time, but not forever. And along the way to the ultimate restoration, is the story of God seeking and finding and providing the way for everyone to recognize how lost they are and to find home again in him. And for all to hear and to find him in Joseph's words, so do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Genesis, the beginning of all things. And after Genesis, there is nothing new under the sun except for what God will do to bring back what was lost. In Genesis, we're reminded of the answer that calls out to us in the questions. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Yes, we have heard. And now we do truly know the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. And boy, are we thankful. <laughs> and oh yes, we did find Jonathan. <laughs> he was blissfully unaware of how lost he was, but we found him. And I will always remember that feeling of joy and relief. And it's the same feeling that comes over me thinking about Genesis and all that we've learned in the pages of this account. The story of God making a way for me to be found. And boy, am I thankful. Amen. Let's pray. God, we are truly thankful and in awe of your goodness and grace and power in our life. Thank you. You recorded for us Genesis. We can learn from it and know you better. Help us to continue with that desire, Lord, as we move on and, and forward today. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.